something that is not right, not just, not fair. You have a moral obligation to set something, to do something. Those now who say removing President Trump will protect the integrity of our democracy have it backwards. It doesn't really feel like we're being impeached. Hello everybody and a very warm welcome to a new episode of Good Governance in the Context of Crisis. Only a few years ago when I spoke about contexts of crisis, I thought about many places in the world. The Middle East, Africa, South America and Asia. But in my wildest dreams, I wouldn't have thought that Europe and the US would be in a position to be linked with crisis. Looking at the polarization within the people of the United States of America, however, it most certainly feels like we are witnessing a key moment in history. US President Donald Trump is now the third president to be impeached. On Wednesday, the House voted on two articles of impeachment, the charges, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The House of Representatives debated for nearly 11 hours on those two articles. Democratic lawmakers described the day as solemn and sad, but also highlight that the president left them no choice. When you see something that is not right, not just, not fair, you have a moral obligation to set something, to do something. Our children and their children will ask us, what did you do? What did you say? For some, this vote may be hard. We have a mission and a mandate to be on the right side of history. The charges against President Trump stem from his actions towards Ukraine. Democrats say that President Trump withheld military aid and leveraged this pressure against the Ukrainian President Zelensky to investigate his political rival Joe Biden. House Republicans today again drastically refuted those claims. For them, the impeachment is just another climax in an unfair political campaign and a sham against the president. Those now who say removing President Trump would protect the integrity of our democracy have it backwards. By removing a duly elected president on empty articles of impeachment, Congress will erode the public trust in our system of government. The inquiry launched in September after an anonymous whistleblower raised concerns about a phone call on July 25th between US President Trump and the Ukrainian leader Zelensky. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was originally reluctant to launch the investigation. Now the next steps fall on her shoulders again. As the historic vote was happening, US President Trump decided to comment on the accusations at a re-election rally in Battle Creek, Michigan. Doesn't really feel like we're being impeached. <laughs> the country is doing better than ever before. We did nothing wrong. We did nothing wrong. And we have tremendous support in the Republican Party like we've never had before. It is most certainly a historic vote. But what does it mean for us far away from the United States? And what does it indicate with relations to governance? The US is not the only country that has decided to pick a more nationalist, less global pathway. The United Kingdom is the next prominent example. 
with Boris Johnson being re-elected as Prime Minister last week, with a landslide win for his party, Brexit is now in its final steps. Today, the Parliament has passed Boris Johnson's withdrawal agreement. Is Brexit just another example for a failure of global governance? What can we learn from Brexit and is there anything we can transfer to the situation in the US? Many questions that I will discuss with my guest today. He is a Young Diplomats Forum 2017 alumnus. He has worked in a number of policy institutions, including the European Parliament, the British Parliament and the House of Representatives in Cyprus and other private institutions. He currently runs a good governance and policy program in conjunction with US congressmen and other stakeholders in Washington, D.C. He has been involved in deliberations invoking the global governance concept an example of which is his participation in the EU delegation for the Y7 in Ottawa. A very warm welcome to my friend and perfectly suited guest for such an interesting and complex topic, George Hadjipavlis. George, thank you for being with us today. Hi Martin, the pleasure is mine. Uh, it's, it's very, very nice to be with, uh, here with you today to discuss uh, this, all, the, all these issues which are very relevant and very important uh, for the times we're living. Thank you for, for taking your time. I know you've been traveling around quite a lot. So um, let me just start with the first question. What does governance mean to you personally and why do you think it is important? I mean, in the introduction we have already heard, you are quite interested in that topic and um, you're doing a lot of things. So yeah, I mean, basically, you know, governance is, is a process which has been an integral part of society. It's been there since you know, uh, the advent of civilization. Um, and it's essentially, you know, the, the interaction of actors in, in uh, basically the decision-making process, uh, which leads, uh, you know, uh, public policy. Uh, what is more important though, I think beyond this kind of scholarly understanding and definition are the concepts of um, good governance and uh, global governance. Uh, and the very relevant uh, good governance is something I'm very uh, much interested in personally, um, good governance being um, holding, you know, public institutions accountable in order to ensure that they benefit the citizens. And this is what I'm doing with my program called the Public Policy Program of Cyprus, uh, which is basically creating a network of uh, young Cypriots, which are going to um, train in, in top institutions like the US Congress, um, the UK House of Commons, uh, with the objective of eventually coming back to Cyprus and applying these good governance lessons. This is very, very important. It's basically execution of the collective action theory. And, and it is important, especially now, because um, we see a decline in the quality of governance, um, which I think we're going to discuss further in this, in this interview. And I think global governance is also very important. Uh, and we can come back to it, I think, uh, whenever, whenever you please. I would be very happy to do so. Now, um, many people claim that democracy is an essential part of good governance. And seeing a rise in nationalist movements, for instance, with the impeachment process against Donald Trump and the re-election of Boris Johnson as the most recent examples, would you say that democracy is in decline or even in a crisis? Um, I think we have to examine what the you know what the word crisis means. Uh, what we have certainly seen, uh, which is it's indeed a bit frightening, it's the um, you know this extreme polarization in our society. Um, 
you know, uh, obviously, uh, the most scary aspect of polarization is is not just the overall picture we see. I think it's polarization within constituent entities, and we see this now in the United Kingdom. You see, Scotland is is uh, you know is is pushing for a um, second referendum through Nicola Sturgeon, and you know this might eventually lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom. I'm not sure about. Uh, I don't have a prediction for you right now, but it's, it's it is a you know a good possibility if the referendum is allowed. And similarly, you know, in the United States. Um, you have, you know, you have, you know, these glowing red states and these glowing blue states. Uh, we saw a, a Democratic congressman switching sides to join the Republican just because he is in a um, he's in a in, in a constituency which voted primarily Trump. And you see this, basically, this um, kind of annihilation of center ground towards. The right end of the spectrum and the left end of the spectrum towards you know the two parties the two poles. Yes. Nonetheless, I, you know I'm not sure if I if I could if I would call it a crisis because um, you know just to be the devil's advocate here, I think we observe that democratic institutions are holding strong, and essentially what the last election was uh, in the United Kingdom, whether we like the um, outcome or not, whether we think Brexit is a disaster. Um, or, you know, um, a great development for British politics, um, depending on, you know, which end of the spectrum we belong. Uh, what we saw basically is the democratic system through through the elections, right? Uh, giving basically the final word on a politicized and difficult battle in the in the in the British political arena. So in the in the UK, we kind of we have observed this resolution of the problem. Um, that doesn't mean that Brexit is going to go smoothly, but in terms of polarization, at least we have it settled. In the US, you know, it's it's still un, un, unraveling. And, you know, uh, I think it's going to come down to the next elections. Yeah. Uh, I think Trump is going to run again. Uh, there's a good chance, you know, uh, he's going to win again. Um, if we look at the polls, um, basically, Trump is leading in some certain polls. And if we see the latest Ipsos Mori poll as well on the impeachment, the, there's there's more Americans actually condemning the impeachment process than supporting it, and this is a repetition of the Clinton impeachment, I think, um, which basically, despite you know, if we look at it from a neutral perspective, despite Clinton actually lying under oath, um, so you know the charges, you know, despite him being acquitted, the charges standing and being correct. What eventually the impeachment process did is actually empower Bill Clinton's popularity. So we might be seeing the same thing with Trump. So there is the chance that a process that was supposed to get him out of the office might very well help keeping him in the office for a second term. And um, if I understood correctly, you believe that um, it is a challenge for democracy rather than a serious crisis. Now, insatisfaction throughout the West is rising, and so is polarization among the people. So good that you touched that topic, because for decades there has been an international institutional system in place guided by the West. Would you say that a lack of good global governance contributed to that polarization? You know, the problem with global governance, uh, and this is what I'm, I'm actually looking into right now, you know, a bit deeper, is that global governance... Uh, it's called global governance because it's anarchy on the international system, right? So nobody can enforce anything on member states, apart, of course, from the collective 
um, or <laughs> unilateral uh, might of one or more um, sovereign member states and uh, nation states. Sorry. Um, so this is a problem. Like um, good governance is a is a whole issue on its own, and and the the, the fact that um, you know nation states are not capable of um, basically uh, tackling problems which fall in the global, uh, the national domain is, is a problem on its own. Um, but, you know, I think the main actor still is the nation state. And I, I think the problems we observe today still fall in the remedy of the nation states. Uh, what is more worrying about me um, is the turn this taking in the United States. We had basically, this is a theme that's recurring and, and, and kind of ascending and we did see it not as powerfully in the United Kingdom but more now in the US which is basically the people against the parliament or the congress so the people against the democratic institutions this is a very dangerous thing um, I mean even if you go into the real Donald Trump Instagram page you're going to see uh, you know a graphic with a caption in reality they're not after me they're after you I'm just in the way, you know. So we see this recurring theme of the Congress standing in the way of the people. This is what's dangerous, I think. You said something very interesting here. So um, basically, the issue is that people believe it is the Congress against the people in the United States. Now, would you say that Trump's rhetoric contributes to these tensions? Absolutely, you know, I mean, um, but we have to remember, we have to remember that um, I was speaking to an American friend of mine, you know, and who's an insider, and he reminded me that the crisis have been an inherent part of the American political system. Uh, we see them coming and going all the time, you know, specifically when he told me this, we're discussing the Brett uh, Kavanaugh uh, case, you know, the, the Trump uh, appointee to yes. the Supreme Court. And uh, it, this is part of... <laughs> normal affairs in the, in the American political system, but that doesn't mean they're not dangerous, right? Um, so, yes, I think um, this normalization of rhetoric is dangerous to democracy and it shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't be putting, you know, uh, power and party politics above holding the integrity of the institutions together. But that being said, I am not completely sure uh, and quoting, not quoting, but paraphrasing Tulsi Gobert, I'm not completely sure that the impeachment across party lines was the best idea at this point in time. Now, if we could try to draw some connections to the United Kingdom here, because maybe we can extract some insight from what happened over there. Now, Johnson got re-elected with a landslide win. So, despite Brexit, and a deep division in the society, people seem to aspire for unity. Now, let's imagine Trump survives the impeachment process, gets re-elected with a similarly clear result in 2020. Could that also cure the wounds between the two blocks in the American society? Or would that rather foster the divide among Republicans and Democrats? Well, that's a very interesting question, a very interesting consideration. I think the difference um, in the, there's a lot of similarities, I'm going to come back to that, but the difference in Brexit and the impeachment process is that Brexit, as crazy as the whole ride was, you know, the referendum, uh, the elections, the debates, the parliament, they were all part of normal democratic life. Uh, the impeachment uh, process under Article 1 of the American uh, Constitution 
is an abnormal process. It should be triggered in extraordinary circumstances uh, where the president is basically, you know, he's, 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 um, he's thought to have um, committed um, high treason or misdemeanors in office. So it's a process which is basically set to eject political leaders when their actions go, go against the public interest. So um, it's very interesting to see because, uh, yes, um, the the resolution of the of the of the of the British uh, Brexit situation came one way or the other with the landslide of Boris Johnson, but you know um, even if Donald Trump wins the next elections by landslide, we might still observe uh, you know um, a chaos. Uh, not to mention if he doesn't win by a landslide, you know you're going to have a president who's impeached in office. If it's with a marginal vote or if he, you know, it's a repetition of him losing a popular vote, winning on delegates, then we might see a perpetuation of the chaos in the United States. So this is a very interesting consideration. Um, you know, um, I'm not sure I have the answer for you, um, but it's, it's very interesting to see uh, the events unfold. Now, Trump is harshly criticizing the media. He is attacking his political opponents and often he is criticized for his rhetoric, putting that into a governance context. Would you say that the principles of good governance contradict his behavior in the political arena to a certain extent? You know, this is, again, a question that has polarized a lot of people, um, both in the public and the academic community, you know. Um, you know, it depends on where we take the definition of good governance from. Um, what is certainly happening, and this is very common both in the UK and the USA, is that we have a shift away from liberal and neoliberal politics. So a shift against this liberal establishment, um, not just a shift actually, but it's it's a castigation, it's a battle against the establishment, which is what is also contributing to polarization and conflict and tensions. Um, you know, so away from this liberal establishment that we have been used with, that Fukuyama wrote about in the end of history, um, to a more um, anti-establishment kind of um, uh, mode of mode of thinking. Uh, we see that in the UK. Uh, Boris Johnson is breaking, you know, rank with his with his uh, with former party leaders and prime ministers of the United Kingdom. He's going against the Thatcherite neoliberalism, and he's embracing kind of um, an understanding of what they call the one nation conservatism. This is very different. This is back going back to Benjamin Israeli. Um, Trump is doing the same, but it's a bit more acute. Um, so he's, he, you know, he's embattled with the media. He's embattled with all the institutions that promote this liberal rhetoric. And you know, as we said in the beginning, is this a threat to uh, good governance? It depends on where you take your definition from. If you link good governance with liberal democracy, then yes, it's an outright threat. It's an outright problem, but if you take good governance as any kind of mode of governance uh, that is basically upholding the rights of the people, uh, then maybe it's a no. One thing you have addressed is that we are also speaking about ideologies here to a certain extent. Did I get you right? Absolutely, yeah. It's, it is a matter of ideologies, yes. Yeah. Now, if I take a look at your personal background, you were born in Greece, you lived and worked in Cyprus, you studied and worked in the UK. Would it be too much to say that you have two hearts beating in your chest, a European and a British heart? And are they competing also to a certain extent? 
you know, I'd like again, I'd like to paint, uh, a, a, you know, a more uh, shining picture of the developments. I'd like to remain optimistic and say that um, the, 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 you know, these hearts, they don't need to be in contradiction with one another. I think uh, the United Kingdom is co- going to continue to be uh, a European state, even though it's not going to be part of the family of uh, the European Union, uh, because it's in its interest, uh, because uh, most of the stakeholders and most of the actors um and I'm not speaking about just just the conservatives, but you know the private sector, the opposition. If we take all the actors in the UK together, I think they are very strongly convinced that the UK should be a uh, main part of the of, of Europe as an idea, as a continent. Um, and you know, despite of course several bridges being torn down as a result of Brexit, I think um, you know this there this is not going to be a departure of of, of the United Kingdom. Um, uh, from this European family. But there is, that raises a very important consideration, what you're asking, because uh, it's been a big, big, big um, kind of debate. You know, can, um, you know it's, it comes from Euroscepticism. You know, if you look at Euroscepticism, what is Euroscepticism essentially? It's whether national identities can coexist with the European identity. This is not just a question in the UK, it's a question in Cyprus, it's a question in Greece, um, of whether you can actually feel Greek and European, as in EU European, at the same time. Uh, and, you know, we observe that a large part of the public still has difficulty um, bringing the two identities together and kind of having them coexist. And it's it's another potential cause for concern. Um, there is going to be another financial crisis, and we have to think to ourselves, you know, without a strong European identity, which can embrace national identities, what is the future of the Union? Um, so let me, let me <laughs> uh, leave it at that question there. Perfect. Let us zoom out for a moment and take a look at the big picture, the global situation. China is rising economically and has already been heavily pushing for alternative institutional frameworks. What does the disunity in the West mean for the role of the Western world in the global community? Are we maybe witnessing the end of the shiny golden ages of Western dominance? Or would you rather say it is just a challenge that we need to overcome to shine bright again in the future? You know, Martin, you've, you've said a very interesting question and a very, very important question again. Um, and I think it's, you know, going back to what we said before, it's not the problems within Western democracies on their own are frightening me. It's basically, um, you know, um, this relative failure of the West to keep up to external challenges in non-Western countries. Uh, and this is a problem, you know, whether you are a liberal Democrat or whether you are a, uh, any other sort of Democrat in your heart, um, you, you, you know, people who were raised who um, enjoyed Western democratic institutions have to admit that democracy is the best form of governance we have. And these external challenges, you know, they are they are, they are very likely to be challenging those this, this very um, way of life we have living. We see that even within the European Union, um, countries which with less rigid institutions 
um, may not be able to go through crises like Brexit and the, and the impeachment process, the polarization in the US, uh, we have seen a lot of EU member states kind of rolling back towards um, not only liberal form of de- de- democracy, as people call it, uh, basically a, a form of electoral authoritarianism, you know, you know, um, yeah. so it is frightening. It is frightening. And I think what is more frightening is the future, you know, as these balances, as the West weakens with these internal problems of polarization and tensions, uh, we have to wait and see how the relative balance is going to tip. And, you know, in, in 30, 40 years from now, when we are in, you know, in our late 50s or 60s, we might be living in a very different world, which does not resemble anything like we live right now or what we lived in the previous uh, century. Can the application of good governance principles be a solution to this problem? Or do we need to adapt the principles to be able to compete with the rising China and other more totalitarian regimes and systems? I think the principles uh, we have said are quite right. Uh, but I think what we should also do is come together in our shared commitment of democracy and democratic values. Painting bad pictures of each other because we believe in, in one democratic ideology or the other is only weakening us uh, vis-a-vis Uh, the rest of the world, you know, uh, good governance and good governance programs are essential in, in, in holding democracy together, in making sure that governments uh, basically do their job, which is benefit their own people, which is what they're elected for. And we need to continue to exchange ideas be- between countries which are committed to good governance, committed to democracy, instead of basically blaming each other either internally between countries or between, uh, sorry, either internally in, in within countries or uh, between uh, various democratic states. You know, we should all come together in our commitment to democracy and, and find ways to uphold these values, not subtypes of these values, not ideologies within the democratic system, but the first core, and foremost. The core values, yeah. Ensure, exactly, yeah. core values ensure that Western democracy survives. I think that's the urgency right now. I think you have touched a very interesting aspect when you've said that in 40 to 50 years, the world we will be living in will be entirely different to what we are used to. And um, you've also said that we need to unite in our core belief in democracy. Do you think that the US and the UK and everything that is happening there are being a bad example for the functionality of democracy? Or would you even say that maybe what we are currently witnessing is actually positive because it shows that democracy is functioning? You know, we have to acknowledge that, as you said, um, these institutions are working. They're not working as they meant to be working entirely, but they are working, right? Impeachment is there to have uh, as, uh, to act as a check and balance, as a democratic safeguard. You know, Nixon resigned even uh, with the fright, you know, of being impeached. Um, the same, you know, as we discussed before, elections, referenda, debates in parliament, deba- debates in the public sphere, the very notion of having the ability to um, voice your own opinion in public, you know, these are things we, we take for granted, uh, but they are not omnipresent in the globe, right? So all of these institutions are working. Now, we have to understand also, I think, that they are not working in the spirit they're meant to be. Um, 
polarization is weakening us, as discussed before, vis-a-vis the rest of the world. You know, instead of being united, uh, I'll give you the cheesy quote, you know, um, united we stand, divided we fall. Um, if we're not united, uh, then we have to remember that this is a multipolar world, you know. Uh, others are going to overtake us. Others are going to try and push uh, their own mode of governance. And others are also going to unite against us in the worst case scenario. Exactly. You know, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to name any, any, any states, but we already see a, a very powerful antagonist, as some would claim, actually exerting its soft power in the mode of an alternative um, system of governance, right? They are basically pushing for a more authoritarian, conservative, as they claim, I wouldn't say it's conservative, uh, idea of governance. Uh, so this is happening. This is not just um, a fear. Now, being a young leader yourself, someone who has a bright future in front of him, Are you in any way frightened of what is waiting for our generation and for yourself? Well, absolutely I am. You know, I, of course, I try to remain optimistic uh, without doubt that uh, we have a, our democratic institutions, which have been tested through the years, are going to protect us. Uh, but it, it, is, it is frightening, you know. Um, we fought for these values and principles uh, for many, many years. It, it, we, these values and principles were forged through wars. So... This maturity that we observe in the West um, has come through a lot of pain, a lot of suffering and, 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 and tears and blood, you know. Uh, so it is frightening that we might be going back to a system that we don't know if it works. We don't know what it's going to bring. Is it going to bring conflict? Is it going to bring uncertainty? Um, but again, you know, it's in our hands. We do not have to be passive and say, hey, this is frightening. Hey, we might be living in a totally different world. Um, in, in 50 years from now, but we have to act, you know, we have to get together, especially our young people, uh, find other like-minded people and share a commitment in these values through activity, through action, through uh, initiatives, um, and, and kind of do our bit to preserve this way of life. So is that polarization a good thing to mobilize young people to contribute to important discussions, like we've seen with the Fridays for Futures movement, for instance? I think uh, this is the first time you're not going to uh, see me agree with a statement, uh, Martin, <laughs> but I think polarization is a very, very bad way to mobilize people. Um, I think uh, pluralism uh, of ideology, pluralism of voice is an essential part of democracy. But what polarization is doing is eventually um, it's a hostile approach to this pluralism, right? So it's basically my idea is better than yours. Uh, and my idea is better than yours in a way that you should not be voicing your opinion. I think an essential feature of democracy is everybody having the right to voice their opinion, um, as long as that opinion does not incite any form of uh, further tensions. Uh, but I think 15 and 16 year olds being polarized, being emotional instead of rational, um, being zealots instead of, of dreamers, um, I think it's not a good development uh, for democracy. Okay, but precisely, what would you say to young, concerned people who are scared or afraid? What should they do exactly? The best way for them to contribute is not very different to what they're doing now. It's just the predisposition of uh, you know what they're doing right now. Um, to defend democracy, we have to be able to understand that 
this pluralism of voices is important. So if, and I, I've done this, I've stood before people with different views to mine and I said, hey, I disagree with you, um, but you know, you have every right to say what you have to say and what you want to say and what you're thinking, uh, but so do I, you know, and it's, it's crucial for democracy to be able um, to, to voice these opinions. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I often cite an example from Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, who has been portrayed as a, um, you know, authoritarian kind of figure. But what he has said is that, and it's very important because this comes from a person who people think is anti-democracy, but this is a very important statement towards democracy. He said that if uh, freedom of speech did not exist in the United States uh, through history, then slavery would still be an issue, you know, uh, because um, if there was an absolute rigid standpoint of the status quo, if there was one sole voice in the United States at the time, uh, we would never have developed away from slavery towards civil rights. So it's important, whatever the case is, it's important to fight for your ideas, to fight for your values. There's been plenty of examples you have in the US, you have Martin Luther King, uh, you have John F. Kennedy, who, who basically progressed ideas which were not, um, which were fresh, they were new, they were not well received in the beginning, but you can do that. What this shows, you can do it through non-absolutist non means. I think we have to return. Young people need to remember that freedom of speech is an essential part of democracy. I believe these words are perfect to conclude a very insightful and enlightening discussion. George, thank you very much for being with us today and for sharing your expertise. It was truly a pleasure and uh, we would be more than happy to have you with us again very soon. Thank you very much, George. Thank you very much, Martin. The pleasure was all mine. What an interesting discussion we had today. Follow us on Spotify and iTunes to make sure that you can hear all our podcasts. We will be back very, very soon. Take care and goodbye. This is Martin Elkuri from the Good Governance Partnership.